The interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. And if you're a company or municipality and you want to electrify your fleets, get in touch with an EV specialist over at PG&E at pge.com forward slash GTM. Support for the interchange also comes from Wonder Capital. Wonder is a leading financier of commercial and community solar projects. And now they have lower rates and can finance all kinds of projects. Head over to wondercapital.com slash GTM to experience the wonder difference. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media in Boston. I'm Stephen Lacey. I am your host and a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. And uh, please welcome Shale Khan, who's with me from Berkeley, California. He's my regular co-host. He's managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Good morning, Shale. Morning, Stephen. On the docket this week, curtailment of renewable energy. Historically, we've thought about curtailment as a waste of valuable clean electricity, a financial penalty of sorts for renewable generators who need to monetize every last electron. And curtailment's definitely becoming an issue right now. California has so much solar power. In certain months, it's dialing back tens of thousands of megawatt hours of PV generation. It's happening in other states to a lesser degree. And it's why, one of the reasons why, people are so focused on storage. But our perception of curtailment is changing. New modeling suggests that overbuilding wind and solar is actually the most economic solution for getting to high levels of renewables, not necessarily relying on storage. So how should we think about curtailment? as a liability for generators and grid operators, or a tool for cleaning up the grid. Uh, First, as an aside, curtailment, this word curtailment, not my favorite word. What's a a better synonym? Cuts? Cutbacks? Mm. Docking? (laughs) Docking. Um, I don't know, dumping, dumping excess energy. Shrinkage? Actually, I have a, (laughs) let me, can I try an extended metaphor on you? For, I've been trying to figure out how to describe the problem with curtailment or the the state of curtailment uh, to the layperson, and so here's my attempt: leftovers. So oh, that yeah, the, I like that. The version the version of this is is that uh, my mother in law, my wife's mother, um, is this like world class cook. She's just an incredible cook, and she only had daughters. My wife has a sister and no other siblings, and so I think she decided when I came into the family and started, you know, visiting for Christmas and things like that, that she like wanted to overfeed me. So she cooks this incredible food every time I go visit. Um, and there's just always too much of it. And so there's these leftovers, but then the problem is, you know, I could eat the leftovers the next day, but she just cooks another amazing meal the next day. So I've got like a whole new influx of extra food and, uh, and leftovers. So I've been thinking of curtailment kind of like leftovers. Well, that seems like it would only be a problem if you're the one paying for the food. Uh, well, or you could say like, you know, there's wasted food in the world. She She's cooking too much and wasting ingredients. And, you know, if we don't do anything with it, then it just spoils. <laughs> so a waste issue, not necessarily an economic waste issue. What about a solar spill like a, or a solar spillover? Like my... my cup runneth over with renewable energy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's okay. I don't think any of these are great, to be honest. Well, then let's just keep it at curtailment then for the sake of this conversation. Let's talk about what the problem is today. And then in the second half of the show, we'll talk about why curtailment 
is seen as actually this solution to cleaning up electricity grids. It's a byproduct of an overbuild of renewables that could actually be one of the most cost-effective solutions. But right now, it is causing some problems for generators. Um, so how are renewables being cut back today? If we're looking at curtailment as a problem, how significant is it, Shale? Well, the current state of curtailment, I think, is different probably from the future of curtailment in a high renewables world. But the current state of curtailment, California is your early example of this in the U.S., um, where you have a lot of solar in particular. <clears throat> and so all the solar generates at the same times of the day and sometimes more than other times. So say in a spring sunny day, you'll get lots and lots of solar generation. Um, meanwhile, you have a bunch of other resources that are relatively inflexible. So this might be like your nuclear plants and things like that, um, that kind of have, they have a minimum operating, uh, level that they, they, it's really uneconomic and actually very difficult to turn them off. So you've got this sort of inflexible baseload at the moment. And when you generate all the solar at the same time, so much so that you end up with generation between the inflexible baseload and the intermittent solar that exceeds total demand at any given point in time, net of imports and exports to other states, then you just end up with too much power. So what do you do with that too much power? You dump it into the ground. And that is curtailment. And we've been curtailing energy in California for years, but as we add more and more solar to the grid, it has been increasing. And in particular this year, um, when we've had a couple years of lots and lots of rain, and so the hydropower levels are really high, this is another um, inflexible resource, this, we're curtailing far, far more than we ever have before. In in April of 2019, um, California curtailed about 190 gigawatt hours, which is more than twice what it had in any previous month in history. So it's becoming pretty real in California already. And you know, as we get further and further down this path of decarbonization of the electricity grid and more and more intermittent renewables show up, we're just going to be curtailing more and more until and unless something comes to level out the demand. Another stat that stood out to me in an LA Times article from Sammy Roth on this, um, on this problem was in late May, solar operators had to shut down about almost 5,000 megawatts of capacity, which is about 40% of all of California's solar capacity connected to the grid. So these are pretty substantial numbers, although averaged out over the course of a year, around 2% of total solar generation was curtailed, and it could be around 3 to 4% this year. So it's a significant number during specific times, but averaged over the year, it's still not a huge number. Right. And so I think that thinking about curtailment as a problem, you, you have to think about it from two different lenses. The first is the economics of the project, right? And so let's just say you are the operator of a solar project and you imagine a world in which you are getting paid on the electricity you are generating that is useful to the grid that doesn't get curtailed. Now, just slight caveat here. The way that these contracts actually work typically is the the power producer does not bear that cost right now of the curtailed power. They basically get paid when they produce, regardless of whether or not it actually goes into the grid. And that cost is borne ultimately by ratepayers at the moment. But let's just say it shifts back. Um, the first problem is as you get more and more curtailment, your you know your generation 
is going to be the same or, you know, slightly declining. Um, but your what you're going to get paid is going to be declining much more rapidly. So it erodes the economics of a project. That's sort of problem number one. The problem number two is a more systemic problem, which is say you wanted to solve decarbonizing the electricity sector by just adding enough wind and solar um, or wind, water and solar even so that they can meet your load at all times, right? Um, absent any energy storage or significant demand flexibility. In order to do that, you'd have to build enough so that even on the cloudiest, least windy day, you'd still meet load. And that would mean that on the sunniest or windiest day, you'd have way, way, way too much. So you'd end up curtailing a ton. Um, and so again, it's sort of the question of like, is that efficient or in any way smart from a system optimization perspective? So I think those are the two different ways to think about curtailment as a problem. So then you have two concurrent solutions. You need to restructure contracts so that if generators have to bear the cost of curtailment, it's not going to you know, screw with their offtake contracts. Um, that's that's actually factored into the deal they make over you know multiple decades, and you need to create new market rules so you figure out who bears that cost and you appropriately uh, price or manage that excess renewable energy. So it's a it's a thing you you know you're going to have and you're going to manage well. So you're talking about pretty major market reform potentially and also a rethinking of contracts. Actually, I'm not sure I agree with either of those things. Okay, <laughs> I mean, why not? I think, well, I, I guess from a um, from an economist perspective, I think that the the power producer should bear the cost of wasted energy. If they're producing energy at a time that it's not useful, they should not get paid for it. So, I guess that is a restructuring of contracts, but back in the direction that would hurt the solar plant or the wind farm. Um, but then you have this problem of like, do the economics work for the project? Um, and I don't think that there's a market-based solution to that necessarily, right? It's, there's a, it, perhaps if you further incentivize energy storage and demand flexibility and all that kind of stuff, that there's value there. But to me, like if we have to curtail, then that energy is effectively worthless as long as it's curtailed. Shouldn't Wait, be compensated. Okay, here's where I'll push back. And this may actually be a naive framing or naive question, but if California is saying we need 80% of our electricity from renewables and you are demanding that generators put as much wind and solar online as possible, then why should those generators bear the cost of excess renewable electricity if you have a state policy that's basically mandating we get this stuff up as quickly as possible? That's a fair point. I mean, I guess my argument would be the state policy is mandating that we get to 80% or 100% renewables, but it's attempting to do that in the manner that is as cost effective as possible. And if what you end up doing, and this is, we'll, we'll get into whether this is true or not, but if what you end up doing is overbuilding a ton of renewables and then just wasting a bunch of energy that those renewables produce and that is adds to the cost to ratepayers, um, then that wasn't a well-designed policy. What you should be incentivizing for is get, you know getting increasing penetrations of renewables and then also solving for the challenge of how do we deal with this these you know days, weeks, and seasons of 
different generation profiles that you get from solar or wind, meaning you need to support whatever technologies you're going to use to, to deal with that, be it transmission, long-term storage, or whatever else. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the solutions a bit more. If we're thinking about curtailment solely as a problem that we want to avoid, that will cause an economic hit to generators and is a grid management issue that we want to solve, what are the solutions to this? Obviously, you optimize project development for grid need, but you can also build out energy storage. You can build out transmission infrastructure to handle and transmit that electricity to locations that you need it. Uh, what are some other like potential solutions to the problem as it exists today and will likely increase? Okay, so let's let's run through what I think are probably the three big buckets of of solutions. The first one is energy storage, right? And this is, I think, the one that we probably spend the most time assuming is going to to solve the problem, or at least be a part of the solution, and indeed probably will be a part of the solution. Um, which is you take the excess renewables that are generated at one time that otherwise would have been curtailed, you store them, and then you feed them back into the grid at a time when demand is higher. Um, the challenge with energy storage is sort of, I think, twofold in this regard. One is that it, while it's it's good for sort of daily cycling, at least our current suite of technologies. So you can, it's, it's, it's a probably a good solution for the too much solar during the day, not enough solar at night problem, right? We could probably solve that with lithium ion batteries or some other current existing battery chemistry. It's not so great um, at solving for California generates three times as much solar in the summer as it does in the winter, roughly, right? So that's the seasonal long, long duration storage problem. The sort of related problem is let's just say you didn't care and you way, way overbuilt solar and you had enough of it um, so that you would need, you'd meet most of your demand in the, in the off peak season. Um, even then, you know, we have days on end, maybe weeks on end sometimes without a whole lot of sun. So if you're a grid operator, you have to solve for, you know, you have to ensure high reliability. So you have to make sure that you have enough generation at the peak. Um, so say you have a bunch of cloudy days in a row and, uh, you know, they happen to be hot days. So people are using air conditioning, right? So it, you have to solve for that problem, um, which is tough to do with batteries alone. So sort of that's batteries as partial solution, but probably not full solution, at least in the absence of, you know, some new form of long duration battery. Yes. So this is the most commonly cited example of a way to uh, limit curtailment, build a bunch of storage, site storage on your solar projects, or maybe occasionally even on your wind project. Um, use long duration storage for seasonal variations or short, short duration storage for uh, daily fluctuations. Certainly a doable technological solution for some applications, but limited in nature, both economically and technologically. What are the other solutions that people are proposing? So the second one would be transmission, which is the, you know, one of the solutions to multiple days in a row where it's not sunny is make sure that you have sufficient transmission to transmit power from a place where it is sunny because clouds don't come over everywhere in the country all at once. Um, and so if you had theoretically, and this is what ends up 
being shown in a lot of the modeling, if you had like a nationwide, you know, HVDC transmission network, a lot of these problems would actually be solved. Uh, the challenges with building that kind of transmission or expanding the capacity of the existing transmission in order to do so um, are somewhat economic, but largely political and just, you know, the, the challenge we've talked about it before of building any significant new transmission is really hard, let alone a ton of new transmission, which is what this would require. Yeah, I mean, this is the most significant problem in clean energy development today. It is one of the most limiting factors for large-scale projects, and it's just really hard and takes a really long time to develop new transmission projects. So for me, this doesn't feel like a full solution at all. If you, and in fact, it feels like technologically a better solution than storage, but politically uh, not not as easy. Yeah, and shout out to we we talked we had an episode about transmission a while back. We mentioned that there's a book coming out soon um, by Russell Gold, who's a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, who wrote a book about Michael Skelly, who founded Cleanline, which is the company that it's a private company that maybe has gotten furthest in trying to build out high voltage transmission across the U.S. That book is actually out this week, coincidentally. So um, everybody go go check it out. It's a really good read. Um, but yeah, so I think transmission is you know, your sort of economist's solution um, or system optimization modeler's solution and will probably play a role, but you can't rely on it. Yeah, so what's the last one? So then the third one is to mess with the demand side of the equation, um, which is to say, figure out how to load shift or load shape in a way that, you know, more closely aligns with the generation you're getting off of wind and solar. Again, sort of similar to storage, this is probably a, big chunk of the solution for the daily diurnal issues, right? You shift some of your air conditioning load to middle of the day, um, you know, like pre-cool the house or preheat the house in the winter. Um, you know, those types of things are reasonably straightforward. We definitely have not solved for seasonal or long-term demand shift challenges. You know, they're, they're, have been discussions, for example, about, well, if you have a ton of curtailment for a certain season of the year, can you use that excess renewable energy, which is going to be, you know, zero cost effectively, can you use that to do something like electrolysis to produce hydrogen and then use that hydrogen either for direct combustion or in vehicles or inject it into natural gas pipelines or something. Or desalination. Um, yeah, right, whatever, right? The point being, can you soak up all that extra generation um, to then justify its existence, which may be part of the solution as well, but also pretty early to tell, I think. Um, we haven't really seen any of that at scale yet. And then meanwhile, we just don't have a source of seasonal load, as far as I can tell. There's there's no, nothing that like requires a ton of electricity, but only but can afford to operate only a few months out of the year. You could imagine like a data center, but the problem is you need to be running a data center all the time. So all three of these solutions are really good and really important and will be used. But what if I were to tell you, Shale, the most economically feasible option over developing energy storage, over figuring out new industrial demand side applications for this renewable electricity if it was actually just building more renewable electricity just overbuilding and figuring out curtailment because that's the cheapest option whoa what i was trying to figure out how to how to sound like <laughs> i'm doing a spit take on a podcast 
<laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> before we get there and deal with Shale's shock and surprise, uh, obviously electric vehicles are going to be a huge piece of demand-side management, one tool in our toolkit. And companies and municipalities electrifying their fleets will be a part of that solution. If you're in PG&E service territory and you want to take your fleets electric, then you should reach out to PG&E because they provide substantial financial, logistical, and construction support for all the electrical infrastructure needed to charge a customer's fleet. So thanks to PG&E for being a supporter of this show and get in touch with one of their EV specialists to learn more at pge.com gtm. And we're also brought to you by Wonder Capital. Wonder finances all kinds of projects, not just commercial solar projects, community solar, solar plus storage, projects for California community choice aggregators, pretty much anything. And there isn't such a thing as a vanilla scale solar project. So Wonder Capital can help work through the unique details of your project. Find out more at wondercapital.com GTM. Okay, Shale, let's spend the rest of the show talking about this new interpretation of curtailment, that it's a it's a good thing, that it's a consequence of overbuilding renewable energy, which is actually the most cost-effective solution for cleaning up grids. So how did this interpretation come to be so popular today? Or at least, maybe not popular, but something that everyone's talking about. I'm not sure it actually is an entirely new interpretation, but I think it's it's useful in the context of thinking about all these deep decarbonization plans. I mean, one thing we didn't note before is that this is going to become a very real question um, over the next couple of decades, at least in an increasing number of states. We already have seven states in the United States, I think plus DC that have passed legislation for one, either 100% renewables target or 100% clean energy target. There's four more that have legislation currently on the docket and a bunch more behind that. So it's, it's beginning to look a little bit like renewable portfolio standards looked um, a decade or two ago where just like an increasing number of states have this kind of a bill. And so I think it's going to be a market driver. So this will become a real a real question. Um, and I think the reason that it is a conversation at the moment is there was a bunch of research um, that came out a couple months ago that was from a group of researchers, um, Carl Robago, Richard Perez, Morgan Putnam, who actually turned me on to this topic pretty recently, so credit to Morgan, um, where they were initially doing this sort of deep decarbonization study for the state of Minnesota, but I think it, it applies more broadly. And they were saying, what if we took an approach in figuring out the optimal resource mix for high penetration renewables that is not based on energy, ensuring that all of the energy is is useful and we get to high penetration renewables, but it's just based on cost. Um, what is going to be the cheapest way to get to 70% or 80% or something like that, wind and solar? And what they found is basically that to, to a point, um, it actually makes sense to just overbuild and curtail. You just get, you build more and more wind and solar, but wind and solar may just be so cheap that even though you dump a bunch of it into the ground, and even though you assume that that stuff you get dumped into the ground actually is reflected in the sort of levelized cost to the project, um, it's still cheaper to do that to a point than to, for example, build energy storage to shift all that load. 
And so in the modeling that they were doing, uh, for example, they found that sort of the optimal situation, depending on the scenario and what you're optimizing for and sort of how, um, how much you assume costs fall, roughly speaking, you optimize for sort of like 30 to 50 or even 60% of the generation that is produced in a 70% renewables grid getting curtailed, getting dumped into the ground. So that's not all of it, and that's not 100% renewables. So those are two caveats that are important, but um, that's a lot. And it's, it's, it's an interesting frame to say it's actually going to be optimal for us to just kind of waste all this generation. Well, well, economically optimal. They don't really go into grid operation that much, or they don't talk about policy. It's more about what's the most economically optimal solution, which uh, often doesn't necessarily play out in reality. Yeah, I mean, there's one really practical question here, which is imagine that you're a wind farm developer, right? As as it stands today, the way that you finance that project is you get a power purchase agreement, and that power purchase agreement pays you a certain number of cents per kilowatt hour, and every kilowatt hour you generate counts towards that cents per kilowatt hour. Now, imagine a world in which curtailment becomes increasingly prevalent, and you bear the cost of that curtailment. In other words, when you feed power into the grid and it gets curtailed, you get zero dollars for that, without having, you know, really good foreknowledge of how much is going to be curtailed, are you going to be able to finance that project? It's just a practical question you'll face as you start to head into that world. Well, that's a good point. And it's an added challenge for wind because wind has a production tax credit. So they get paid a tax credit based on how much they generate. So there's very little incentive for wind operators to slash production. I mean, they need to produce as much as possible, whereas Solar producers take the investment tax credit. It's based on um, equipment investments. So the disincentive is a little bit stronger for wind. Yeah, though that's temporary. I think in the, you know, for the most part, we're talking about a challenge that will be faced over the coming decades. And unless the PTC gets extended, you know, it'll be gone long before this it becomes an issue in most states. Can we talk about the arguments for the overbuild of renewable energy and the arguments against it? Um, because it's it's not cut and dry. So I think that there's a very clear case to be made that this could be economically optimal. Um, assuming you can figure out the contracts, assuming you get the grid management piece correct, it looks like today, based on where costs are and where they're headed, this is going to be cheaper than natural gas. It's going to be cheaper than building out lithium-ion batteries and more seasonal storage. Um, and I think they make a pretty convincing case for that. But there are a lot of arguments against this as well. So let's just start quickly with the arguments for this case for the overbuild of renewable energy, and then we'll get into the arguments against it. Well, I guess the main one is it doesn't require a whole lot of new technology or major changes to the market. Like you... Basically, it just that if you could do this um, for a while, you're doing it by just riding the cost curve of two technologies that are already at scale, solar and wind. And so, you know, you can pretty easily paint a picture of just building more and more and more and more and more of it and optimizing a little bit where you place it and so on. Um, but that being like the easiest path to deep decarbonization, if indeed it is also the cheapest. 
Yeah. So, okay. The argument is that it's the cheapest path to a deeply decarbonized grid. The argument's against. Um, I'm going to outline some of them and I want you to respond. So the first to me is transmission siting. So we have clearly articulated on a previous podcast how difficult it is to site transmission in this country, let alone the amount of transmission that we would need to overbuild solar in a state like Minnesota. Thoughts on the transmission problem, Shale? Right. I mean, I think first it's important to note the higher a level of wind and solar you are at on the grid, the more transmission you would need to build. Again, to try to deal with the entire days or weeks of low solar or wind generation, the only way you deal with that um, when you're really high penetrations of renewables is transmission to other climate areas, which means fairly significant transmission addition. So, it, you know, it's worth noting a lot of this modeling that we're talking about. Where you're saying it may be, at least according to the modeling, the most cost-effective solution, but the modeling is looking at things like 70% wind and solar, not 100%. If, you're, if it's at 100%, I doubt it would show the same thing. Um, the other point to make is that even if you aren't trying to solve for the 90 100% type of situation and you don't need to build transmission lines that, you know, get you from the East Coast to the West Coast or something like that, you definitely still need to upgrade existing transmission capacity because you're going to be overbuilding. So instead of building my 100 megawatt solar project in a particular location, I'm going to build a 600 megawatt solar project in that location. That's going to require an upgrade of transmission capacity, which is a cost that I think is not always reflected in the modeling. So long term, if we're talking about a multi-decade deployment of renewable energy that it gets us up to 70%. Um, it feels like discounting energy storage over a, a decade or two is extremely conservative to me. Storage costs have generally fallen faster than what analysts predicted, and it doesn't seem to be a trend that's going to let up. So does this feel like it's discounting the role of storage in terms of cost and technological capability? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's discounting energy storage, but I think you're right that it is. it has already proven to be and will continue to be really difficult to project um, the price of energy storage far out into the future, be that the incumbent technology for daily cycling like lithium-ion or be that these new technologies for long-duration storage that really only exist in the lab at this point. So we just don't know what the cost is going to be. So when I took a look at this study from uh, the researchers at Clean Power Research and University of Albany, my big question was land use. How are we going to get this much land to build this much disperse renewable energy? And they do tackle this question. So in Minnesota, they show that an extreme 100% PV generation scenario would only require enough solar panels uh, to fill 434, 435 square miles. Um, that's about 1% of Minnesota's land used for cultivated crops. And uh, that feels like a very doable number to me. I wonder what your reaction to the land use question is. It's particularly troublesome in you know desert areas where you have sensitive ecosystems. Um, but I'm just curious, like, is this a problem to you that stands out? Because they seem to address it here, at least. My um, attitude toward land use and renewables has always been, I mean, all, all the 
um, modeling that I've seen suggests that we have enough land. The land is probably available, and certainly the further you can get out into like the desert, there there is sufficient land to power as much of our energy system as you want with renewables. However, the cost of that land is not just born in the land itself. It is born in the transmission capacity that you need in order to deliver the power from that land to load. So for me, the land question is just another reason why as you get to really high levels of solar and wind, you need to build out a bunch more transmission. Yeah, well said. So my final point on this is not necessarily an argument against this thesis. It's more of a realistic look on what we're going to need to fully decarbonize the grid. You outlined in the first half of the episode some of the solutions, energy storage, demand-side management, transmission. And the reality is we're going to need all those solutions, including perhaps in certain states or in certain regional grids, an overbuild of renewable electricity and a reliance on curtailment. And I thought the best person who articulated this was a guy named Eric Hittinger, who's a public policy professor, an energy wonk. He has a lot of great threads on these kinds of topics. And he had a response to this study, basically saying, of course, this could be a potential solution, but it's one of many solutions. And he writes, in communications, we use mail and landlines and email and text messages and Skype and Slack. Texting didn't destroy email and Skype didn't destroy landlines. They each have their own niche in a complex communication ecosystem. A similar thing will be true for dealing with the variability problems coming from more wind and solar. We'll build some storage. We'll use some demand response. We'll charge EVs, we'll build some new long-distance transmission, and we'll find some additional uses like hydrogen, and then, of course, we'll curtail some of it. I think that perfectly encapsulates where this fits in. The overbuild of renewables is not going to work everywhere, um, but certainly, in some cases, it could be economic to do so and just curtail, but it's one of many options that we have. I mean, I'm probably, I agree completely, and I'm, I'm willing to go even a step further and say probably some amount of curtailment is going to be optimal in every situation. I think I, I think we're probably always, given how cheap wind and solar is going to be, we're always going to have some times when we have more of it than we need. You know, another um, way to think about this that I think was useful for me was somebody made the point that, look, curtailment of wind and solar is really not that different from the way that dispatchable generators work today. Anything that's not operating at 100% capacity factor means that, you know, in the case of, say, a natural gas plant, we're just not running it all the time. So it's producing less than it could. The distinction with wind and solar being it's producing less than it could, and it happens to, you know, have some extra production that doesn't make it into the grid. But it's not really functionally all that different from that perspective. Um, so I think that, yeah, we're, we have a basket of solutions to the intermittency of renewable energy as we get more and more of it on the grid. And curtailment is a byproduct of one of those solutions, which is just build more wind and solar. So, you know, we're going to get a fair amount of it. And then the interesting question will be like, as that becomes more and more common, will we ever start to find solutions, useful, um, useful works to do with abundant free energy at certain times of the day or certain times of the year? Will we start electrolyzing 
to produce hydrogen? Will we do desalination? Will we find some source of seasonal load? I think I mentioned this before, but and I was reminded recently by by Gene Bertaszewski, who's the CEO of Seal uh, and Nanotechnologies, that he came up with this with me. So half credit goes to him. But you know, this idea of like putting a Bitcoin mine on a barge that just goes back and forth from the northern to southern hemisphere to catch the the overproduction in, in one season and then the overproduction in another season. Like, will we ever find something that's just like a seasonal source of a ton of load? Maybe. Well, we may. And I suspect that this is a positive iterative cycle. When you have markets where there's a ton of excess renewable energy, you see industries flock to those markets. It's what happened with Iceland. You have you know, uh, data centers flocking to Iceland. It's what happened when in the U.S. Or early on, data centers flocked to, to places with cheap coal electricity and are now being cited in places with cheap renewable electricity. So I think that when you have a problem like curtailment and you have all this excess generation, other industries will come and seek it out. Yeah, I mean, I hope that that's true. Um, I, you know, we, we just, we don't have an industry that's like this yet, it's got to be a combination of highly energy intensive and able to operate at low capacity, basically. And that just doesn't exist at this point. But who knows? Maybe it'll come. Have you thought any more about a better word for curtailment? Or are we just stuck with curtailment? Solar diminishment? Solar slashing? Yeah, you know, I've sort of come around to spillover. Yeah, I like that. I, I kind of like it. I'm a, I keep imagining like pouring my coffee in the morning and then accidentally pouring a little too much of it. I love my coffee. <laughs> but I don't want to waste a drop of it. Well, folks, we need an, an over-generation of commentary from you. No curtailment needed. Uh, just send us your tweets so that we can read your reactions to this episode and other stuff that we're doing. We, we love to hear your ideas. I always say this, but it's true. I don't often get a chance to respond to everyone, but I do read everything. Every tweet that comes to us, uh, every email that we get, absolutely helps inform the show so thanks for listening we really appreciate it and you know if you want to do us a favor go to apple Podcasts and give us a rating review or anywhere you get your podcast and it certainly helps us out if you want to recommend this show on social media or shoot an email to your friends and colleagues maybe folks who are in this industry dealing with this problem right now and you want to get their reaction to this challenge shale another good conversation thanks for it yeah thank you steven with Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. 